0: Yeah, so in the book, I use the COMB model of behavior change to talk about ability. COMB is an acronym. It just, the B is behavior because, like, like I said, my discipline, we're always looking at a behavior and how to change or support it. And then we do an analysis of what might be blocking or making that behavior difficult. And the three categories of things that we're looking for are capability. Opportunity and motivation. So that's the calm and combi. You know, at a high level, those those really do cover most of the things that get in people's way to be able to perform a behavior. Hi, I'm Claudia, and you're listening to the Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. If you're new to the show, my goal is to show you how to apply neuroscience and behavioral science to your leadership goals, brand strategy, and your personal dreams. Last week, I had a chance to speak to Melina Palmer about making behavioral psychology simple for business and relationships. And some of the feedback has been that people want more insight about applying brain science to leadership, team goals, and moving people on an individual level. So I thought I would share a conversation I had with Amy Bucher, the author of Engaged Designing for Behavior Change. You may have heard Amy's work and heard me speak to her, but I want you to listen with your leadership hat on and think specifically about how you can apply her research insights to your work as a leader to both your team as well as in your own personal life. Meet Amy Bucher. Enjoy. All right, let's do it. Amy Bucher, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
1: So you're in Boston at the moment?
0: I am. I was actually born and raised here. I left for about a decade to go to graduate school and start my career and then came home. And I've, I've been here another 10 years or so since.
1: If my research is correct, you did your undergrad at Harvard?
0: I did, yeah. So, didn't didn't really leave home for college, um, but you know, how can you resist if you have the opportunity to study at Harvard,
1: right? And you know, Boston. I mean, I spent two years at MIT. So, I mean, Cambridge in that area, part of the world is just special, and I think it's even underrated. It's so lovely. So, you're lucky. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I've said before, I don't like the winter and I've only ever lived in places that have somewhat harsh winters, but its I, I can't imagine not living here. It's just, I love it. It feels like home. And so I put up with the cold months so that I can have the beauty of being here the rest of the year.
1: Well, congrats on your book, Engaged. Thank you. I Am I your first podcast in South Africa or Africa?
0: I think you are, yes.
1: Well, I mean, I actually came across your work from a podcast i think it was either new zealand or australia
0: yeah i've done um at least one in australia
1: yeah it was probably australia uh, yeah. every so often i'll put i'll put uh, sort of search links in just for behavioral science and you just came up and i'm i feel very fortunate to come across your work i purchased your book on amazon and i'm i'm really really excited you made time so thank you again
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And I, you know, I I said to you when we were preparing for this over email, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to, you know, talk to a South African based podcast and, and reach this part of the world. I I am passionate about travel and learning about different cultures and applying the things that I not just applying the things actually learning from from people elsewhere in the world about how these concepts might look different and might look the same. So this is really cool for me, too.
1: Let's come up with three key words that define your work. I'm going to give you two sets of three words. The first set okay. is design. The first, word, the first set is behavior, design, change. The second set is psychology, design, change. Which of these sets fit you closer?
0: I think I'm going to have to say behavior design change uh, because Ah. I think that behavior change design as I practice it is a little broader perhaps than psychology, but it does always look at behavior,
1: Uh, but that is a hard
0: choice. That's a hard choice for somebody who trained so long in psychology.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, behavioral science is such an interdisciplinary field. Which of these words, individual words, are you most drawn to out of all the words I just gave you?
0: I am actually drawn to change because, and this is a conversation I've had with other folks who are working in this field, which is a relatively new field. So I feel like we're just discovering each other, you know, people with the social sciences background who are working in design. And I had somebody ask me, why do you always say behavior change design? This person calls himself a behavior designer. So without the word change and I had to think about it, but to me, the process of design is in order to support some sort of change. It's not its not just to understand the status quo. It's really to define a different endpoint, and then the process through which a person might get there and provide them with whatever support they need to make that happen. So the change is really critical, I think. It's, it's embedded in the way I approach my work.
1: I believe Nelson Mandela was the first behavioral scientist politician. I mean, his case where he comes out of prison, wears this sort of rugby springbok jersey and inspires the nation to sort of come together, is an extraordinary moment. Let's see if we can think of any other politician who sort of believes in the principles of your work.
0: Oh, well... Um, in the in the United States, and again, I don't know any politicians personally, so who knows what they really believe? But sure, um, sure. the politician that I've seen who's probably well, I'm going to name two. Um, so okay. one is actually Barack Obama created a behavior science division in in his in the federal government, similar to the um, what the U- UK government has done. Um, that no longer exists, but for a few years during the Obama administration, there was a behavior science team that was working in the federal government. That was helping to shape some policy decisions and approaches and really bringing that science into the way the government did its work. And so I tend to think that if somebody invests resources and money behind something, they believe in it. And so I would say it seems like Obama believed in behavior science. But then the other person is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, I don't know if if you would have heard of her, but she, yes, Yeah. yeah, she's a U.S. representative in New York, and she's very young, very charismatic. But why I think she has a behavior design approach, a behavior change design approach, is that she's really about understanding her constituents, her, you know, her followers and speaking to them in a way that resonates with them and supports their goals, which is kind of at the heart of the approach that I take with motivation in my work. So I think she does a really awesome job at just creating that, that personal feeling connection and drawing it forward into the work that she's doing in her government role.
1: Yeah. People come at behavioral economics from all angles, you know, from economics, marketing, Uh, Jeff. Chrysler, I think, who wrote mm-hmm. the forward of your book, is a comedian. He's obviously cele- celebrated in this space. Um, uh, which angle, I mean, besides psychology, do you think? I mean, you absolutely have really you have a really wonderful writing tone, which was sort of accessible and so forth. But, you know, from marketing uh economics, yeah, so which other side are you to drawn story to?
0: Storytelling and in school, one of the ways that I approached that was I took some of my electives in anthropology. So it's a, you know, a different social science discipline that I don't think you see a lot combined with psychology, but it really focuses on learning about a context, a group and being able to tell their story in a compelling way. I, I find in the work that I do every day too, it's a lot about storytelling, whether I'm telling a story to somebody to explain, you know, what I've found in my research or how I think something works Or more often, it's really me hearing stories from people, asking people to tell me their stories when I'm doing an interview or doing research so that I can learn from what they're experiencing and what their context looks like. Um, I know storytelling in and of itself isn't an academic discipline, but when you were asking the question, that was the first thing that came to mind.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Amy. (laughs) Do you have a favorite behavioral science book besides yours?
0: Um, I do. Actually, I really, really like super better by Jane McGonigal. And I don't know if she would call it a behavioral science book. But what I love about it, actually, to get to that point of storytelling is it's all wrapped up in her personal story. So she suffered a head injury, and had a traumatic brain injury where I think it was for about six months, she needed to do absolutely nothing to recover. And so this is, you know, a brilliant woman with a PhD and an active academic life. And suddenly she has finds herself laying in bed. She can't read. She can't watch TV. She can't carry on a sustained conversation like her world is reduced to to her bed. And um, she invented this game super better to keep herself motivated and sort of give herself something that she could do with just her mind while she was recovering. And when she wrote the book of the game and it's actually become an app and you, there's a, a group called super better at work that sells it to businesses or a version of it to businesses oh, wow. for things like, yeah, it, it's, it's really become a whole thing. But in her book, she talks about this game. And what I love about it is that the motivational science behind it is so solid. Like okay. she doesn't, she doesn't explicitly draw all of the different theories and frameworks in the way that that I might, uh, but she just creates this this universe that really is built on solid behavioral science found, foundations. So I love that book. I think it's really approachable. It's really fun. And it's got that personal aspect too, where you can see why she's got the passion for it.
1: Yeah. Okay, so before we dive into the meat of the conversation, let's have a little fun aligning a few of your passions with Africa, okay? Okay. So I see that you enjoy running, if you could go for a run in the safari, which animal would you be most afraid of and be looking out for as you're running?
0: So it would be the hippopotamus because I understand that they're <laughs> extremely deadly. <laughs> and people don't think that. <laughs> but my, right? my understanding is that they uh, they will just kill you. So <laughs> I don't want to meet one.
1: <laughs> it's funny. I think I heard... I don't know if it was on Snap Judgment, a podcast where there's an entire story about a hippopotamus. Like, you know, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Number two. You have cats, I think, right?
0: I have three cats.
1: Okay. So if you have to replace um cats, your cats, with a lion, tiger, or cheetah, which one would you choose?
0: Oh, Um I think, I guess... I don't know. That's a hard question. I'm trying to think which one is most least likely to kill me, which is obviously my obsession <laughs> now with these, these animals. Um, well, I guess I would go with uh, a tiger just because they're really beautiful. And um, one of my cats is a tabby. So he has the tiger stripes already. Oh, so okay. Okay.
1: Maybe
0: I'd miss him a little less if I could see the same pattern.
1: Sure. sure. Okay. Awesome. You traveled to Japan and mm-hmm. seemed to love it, right? Yeah, I did. Which part which did you go to?
0: So we did. Uh, we went to a few places. We went to Tokyo, Osaka. We went to Hakone, which is near Mount Fuji. We went to Kanazawa. And we took the train around the country. So we got to see sure. a little of the the landscape, too.
1: Lovely, lovely. Okay, so which sport did... Okay, um, this is the question. It's aligning Japan to South Africa. Which okay. sport did Japan beat South Africa in in 2015 that was one of the greatest upsets in history? which sport
0: i'm gonna have to guess cricket
1: ah close good great good guess it was rugby okay rugby. i was gonna
0: i know that the japanese love baseball but it do, i because they love baseball i feel like it wouldn't be an upset if they won
1: yeah i think it's funny because no one thinks about J- japan and and rugby which is why it was such a big upset where South Africa defines much of its identity around rugby. So, all right. Awesome. So in a moment you're going to give, and you're going to share five practical insights applied to ability, growth, connection, change in your future self, but let's touch on social media before diving in from a psychological perspective. Are you a little afraid of how fake accounts and algorithms influence our behavior?
0: Um, absolutely. Yes, I am. And I've I've actually been spending some time recently thinking specifically about algorithms and how they end up encoding bias in the way that they're designed oftentimes. And I think sometimes that is, I won't say intentional. Sometimes it's something that truly is accidental. A designer who creates an algorithm doesn't understand how, how bias is being encoded. And that's not their intention, but the process wasn't running away to avoid it. I think sometimes, again, intentional is not the right word, but there are people who don't care. It serves their purposes for the algorithm to be biased. And that is more problematic, obviously, because they're not motivated to change it or do things differently when it's pointed out to them. But, yeah, I think that um, there is a lot of danger. It's not just the misinformation that's on social media. It's that it's presented in a way that connects with the way the human mind works because we're such social creatures. we really look for others who we can feel a connection to. Like we're looking for those threads of similarity. And when you have fake accounts out there and they're presenting these really, um, you know, just attention grabbing, but biased and untrue pieces of information in a way where you feel like it might be coming from a real person who's like you and I want to connect with this person. It just overrides a lot of the, the critical faculties that we might otherwise have if that information was presented in a different format. And I think that we're certainly seeing the effects of people building up these communities online yeah. that are, you know, half fake <laughs> and, sure. and just sharing this information that, that isn't true.
1: Any quick tip before we jump into the insights around how we can sort of design engagement with social media to kind of shield ourselves so we can operate it at our best?
0: Um, You know, I don't have the answer, certainly. I know some of the things that I've done for myself, I'm first of all trying to limit my time on social media. And I find in particular I'm limiting my time on Facebook just because it's the platform that leaves me feeling the most upset. Weirdly enough, because it's the people that I actually know, uh, and I think sometimes it, it can feel upsetting to see the diversity of belief in ways that um, you know. It's it's not like people having a different food or or a food preference or something <laughs> like that. Like I, that's great if everyone has a different opinion, but if I go online and I see people have really different you know quote unquote opinions about public health that feels very different and very upsetting because there really is an objective truth in that domain. Um, So I've I've been limiting my time on social media and I found that that helps a lot. And I've also spent some effort curating the communities that I'm a part of. And that includes using, there's third-party sites you can go to where you can check if different accounts are real or not, if they're bots. And so every now and then I'll run an analysis on my account and just make sure that I'm not interacting with bots, that I'm, you know, trying to really interact with real people. So I try to do that vetting and make sure that I'm not being exposed as much to some of this information as I might be otherwise.
1: That's very helpful. Curating and then during the analysis. That's super, super helpful. Thank you. All right. Let's jump into number one, to ability, insight number one around ability. So there's a lot of baggage, that comes with ability. So people assume well, if you were born with a silver spoon, or if you born shorter, like me, you've got an advantage over tall people, or, <laughs> or whatever, right? There's all these sort of dynamics around ability and the perception of ability. But what, what are some of the real blockers of ability?
0: Yeah, so in the book, I use the COMB model of behavior change to talk about ability. Um, COMB is an acronym, it just the B is behavior, because like, like I said, my discipline, we're always looking at a behavior and how to change or support it. And then we do an analysis of what might be blocking or making that behavior difficult. And the three categories of things that we're looking for are capability, opportunity, and motivation. So that's the calm and calm B. And, um, you know, at, at a high level, those, those really do cover most of the things that get in people's way to be able to perform a behavior. I personally tend to hone in on motivation a lot when I'm doing my work, because I think that that is a really, really big blocker. Um, And it's just things sometimes like goal priorities. People may agree that a particular behavior is important or something that they should want to do. But when it comes down to it, we all have a 1000 things we need to do every single day. So you know, it's putting food on the table for meals and taking care of our families and doing our, our, you know, paying jobs and all those things get in the way of these other goals where we might say like, oh, if, you know, I would make a movie if I had if I were in the middle of a pandemic and I had access to video equipment and I had all this time. Well, no, you probably wouldn't because you'd still be really caught up <laughs> in you know, all of your activities of daily life. Those things don't go away. They don't disappear. And we are all limited in the time and effort that we can expend across the course of a day. So I I tend to look at those motivational factors a lot and at how do we basically reframe things so that they can come higher in the priority list. Because oftentimes it's really making the decision that I am going to devote the time to this thing instead of to all of the other things. So I mentioned before that I really like how AOC talks to people and kind of understands what what gets them going. And in my work, similarly – try to talk to people and understand what, what makes something a high priority for you. And is there a way that I can design this behavior that we're trying to get you to do so that it fits that priority bucket. So you're not making the decision not to do something that's important, but rather this thing becomes important to you.
1: Well, um, it reminds me of, you know, I read BJ's, BJ Fogg's book, um, tiny little habits. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a concept called bundling and, in my head, I'm like, okay, how do I build a chest that does not reflect my age? <laughs> yeah. and, so, and one way is to do push-ups, and I hate push-ups, but I linked push-ups to something we have in common, which is running. So I, by linking push-ups and doing a few before I go run, it really changed how I saw my ability. And it's just unbelievable how these small little things can make such a fundamental difference, Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, on, along the same lines, I'm I'm doing something sort of similar. Not push-ups, but I keep getting injured, so I've started to try to stretch. And I I know we're on video. I know the podcast listeners won't know this. You can probably see in the background. I have a Peloton now.
1: That's okay. Pandem- oh wow. A
0: pandemic purchase. So okay. um, normally we would spend money traveling, and we can't do that now. So it we is, bought yeah. we bought a Peloton bike, and it has these on-demand workout classes. So now after I come back from a run, I do a stretching workout. And as you said, for me, I hate stretching. I hate it. It's boring. It, I, I just it doesn't give me the rush that a run gives me. But I keep, like I said, I keep getting injured, and I, I'm getting older, and I know that it's something I need to do. And so it's thinking about, okay, this is going to make me a better runner. And then the other thing with Peloton is it keeps track of all the workouts you do. So I'm basically um, like earning digital badges and seeing. Oh, lovely. lovely. I'm scoring on these stretching workouts and I'm a very um, metrics focused person. So it works with that part of my psychology, too.
1: Let's move to number two, insight number two around designing for growth. I mean, in 2019, South Africa grew by 0.8%, not even 1% GDP, And I think with this pandemic and, you know, moving through and past the pandemic, growth is going to be a big part of what everybody is focused on. So whether it's personal growth or organizational growth or nations thinking about growth, what are some thoughts around designing for it?
0: So a thing that is really important in designing for growth is to think about how you can measure that from multiple different angles. And you talk about something as large as a GDP, That's one number, but underneath it, there are so many different behaviors performed by different groups and individuals that add up to that result. And oftentimes with behavior change design, we're really focusing on those smaller groups or individuals when we're creating our interventions or going out and doing our outreach. And so to say to somebody, you know, an individual person who's contributing at a very, very small level to what the GDP looks like, to have that be your only metric can feel really intimidating. And also anything that individual does isn't going to move the number very much. So we really need to think about the submetrics. How do we how do we break that down into smaller pieces that are more meaningful to the individuals and to the groups? And how do we be providing feedback along the way so that people feel motivated to continue in their individual contributions? So, um, you know, I, I talk about this a bit in the book. It, it, yeah. We see it with health all the time, actually. So a lot of the projects that I work on for clients in the health area, we're asking people to lose weight for one reason or another. There are a lot of different health conditions where that might be part of the the lifestyle management. Um, and sometimes it's something people want to do just as a goal in and of itself for, you know, appearance reasons or whatever, whatever reasons, it doesn't matter what their reason is. But the thing about weight loss is it takes a lot of time if you're doing it in a healthy way. And so people are putting a lot of effort into their individual choices, you know, what they're eating for dinner and whether or not they're getting exercise, and it will take them a long time to see results on the scale. So successful weight interventions oftentimes will attune people to things that are happening more quickly. So, all right, the scale is going to say the same thing tomorrow as it said today, but how do you feel? Do you feel more energy? People's clothing will start to fit differently sooner than the number on the scale will change as they build muscles. So, you know, let's get them to pay attention to that. And the whole purpose of that is just to give people that sense of growth before the more traditional or, um, you know, the lagging metrics will show it.
1: Let's move to insight number three, designing for connection. This is something I'm really, really, really passionate about. And I'll give you a personal story. So with going back to the power of algorithms, I found that it's so easy to get caught up in a silo or some sort of echo chamber without even realizing it. And I'll use Netflix as an example. So if I click on Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock, the algorithm assumes that I'm not interested in white comedians or Indian comedians or any other comedians outside of black. So it just keeps feeding me black comedians. And so what I've done is started to hack um, and like slide the bar on and to show the algorithm that I'm actually interested in Bill Burr or some other you know race or whatever and what what that's helped me do by how hacking the system is filling blind spots and being sort of unconsciously open to a diverse set of people and i and I see it in when I go to follow people on LinkedIn and so forth i'm just kind of naturally drawn and so I really genuinely do feel that connection almost has to be designed for like if you just kind of live and you just kind of- like it's crazy that we've arrived in this state in this space and that's what I wanted to chapters I really enjoy um, around your book. So I wanted you to speak a little bit about Connection Design Book.
0: Yeah, and I I love what you just said. Um, It's kind of the dark side of what I do with curating my social media feeds, right? Because I am deliberately limiting the people I interact with to a certain group. And perhaps, not perhaps, definitely, not exposing myself to other valuable worldviews that are out there. But um, when you're talking about algorithms, one thing that a recommendation algorithm probably should do and not a lot do, I don't think, is deliberately insert wildcards. So the music apps are better about this, Pandora and Spotify, where it gets a sense of what you like, but then every 20th or 25th song will be something that's not really what the algorithm would predict. It's, it's an, a wild card, something offbeat. And you get the chance to say if you like it or not. And if you do like it, it expands the algorithm. So you can start to build more things into it.
1: I like Um, that. The wild card, wild card effect. I like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that Netflix does it very well. It may be built into their algorithm, but it doesn't seem to be effective. Because I agree with you. My, the things it recommends to me are are pretty consistent at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, In terms of designing for connection as well, this is where I'll go back to the storytelling piece. I think giving people the opportunity to share their stories to tell their stories is really important, because as human beings, we are so wired for story data, and for connecting with each other. So Um, I think that's one reason why why Facebook has been so successful is because it gives people an opportunity to use photographs, to use words, to use video, and share what's going on in their lives. And we are all very interested in other people's stories. I mean, look at little babies and how much they love faces. That doesn't go away as we get older. It just looks different in the way that it gets expressed. So, you know, I think that As we design, we need to think about opportunities, whether it's putting people in connection directly with each other, which sometimes works well and sometimes creates more trouble than it's worth, or is it ways that we as designers can surface people's stories and the experience? Um, You know, I'm I'm doing some work right now where we're thinking about, can we curate essentially a gallery of stories, like a patient-driven blog where people can talk about what their experience has been? And it's very controlled. We're not opening the door for a legal difficulty, but we're giving other visitors the opportunity to see that they're not the first people to experience this particular behavior. And there's lots that they can learn from what others have done too.
1: I'd like for both of us to tell a a personal story um, to really sort of highlight this effect. And I'll start. And I would love for you to tell the story about when you went to Harvard and how you felt. so I'll start though. When I first came to South Africa, I was so insecure. Like some of the names have a lot of clicks in many other cultures, and I felt horrible messing up people's names. And so I pushed myself and I really pushed myself and I still get in fact I think there's this one young lady that I would have probably dated if I could have gotten her name right. <laughs> <laughs> but her name had like three clicks in it, and I felt every time I said her name, she just looked at me like, you're useless. <laughs> but I, I went through a traditional ceremony where I, you know, sort of struggled a little bit in the ceremony and they saw that I was trying and I told them I'm really sincere and I'm really, really trying. So they gave me a name called Gagnani Gagnani, which means little by little, slowly but surely. And so I manifested that name. And whenever I tell people that story, it immediately bonds and it transforms how they see me from this ignorant American who's messing up my name to someone who's trying. And that, that shift, It's, it's dramatic how people receive me differently and just the sheer power of story, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Would you be open to tell the story when you went to Harvard?
0: yeah sure. So you know, like I said, I, I was accepted to Harvard. and the, the piece of background that's important to know is that I, I grew up in a very um, like low middle class family. So my father was a firefighter, and when I was a, a younger child, he always worked two or three jobs. Actually, he always worked two jobs until he retired, um, which is very common among firefighters because their schedule gives them uh, days off. So a lot of them will augment their income with a second job. But when I was a little child, he was working three jobs. My mom was a stay-at-home parent. Um, neither one of my parents had a college degree until much later. Although they did both go back to school and earn degrees oh, later wow. on.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah, so we, you know, I grew up in a family where it's just not what you think of when you think of Harvard. And then I was accepted. Of course, I decided to go because, I mean, Harvard, yes, all right. <laughs> and I arrived on campus and, like, man, we want to talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> I, I was just blown away, um, on a number of levels. So, you know, first of all was so many of my classmates came from wealthy families. So they're, you know, even just the clothes they wore and, um, you know, just the cultural signifiers when they talked about going out to dinner and things like that, it wasn't an experience that, that resonated with me and my background. And then the academic aspect of it too, because so many of them had gone to these elite schools where they had really received, um, you know, an amazing education, I remember I actually took a course my first semester of college. We all had to take, um, it's called Expos, expository writing. Every freshman at Harvard takes it, and you get to pick your topic. So I ended up picking the world of D.H. Lawrence because one of my roommates convinced me that a worldly person will have read D.H. Lawrence. And I had never even heard of D.H. Lawrence. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, I I I have to rectify this. (laughs) Yeah, I don't recommend It was. <laughs> it it just wasn't a great move because I wasn't following what was right for me. And it turns out I don't really like the work of D.H. Lawrence. Like, he can stay in that world. Mm. But it took a I don't know that I ever really got over it while I was at Harvard. Um, and even now I, I bristle because when you tell people you went to Harvard, there's a there's a phrase for it. You call it dropping the H-bomb. Sure and people react a certain way to it, like they they and that 's why there's that joke about people who went to Harvard will say, "Oh, I went to school in the Boston area, oh no, it was Cambridge, oh, no, it was near the river. I mean, you know this from being at mit it's
1: sure, yeah, similar it's a thing.
0: and it's a thing, and i mean i'm, I'm sure some thing. people are are like you know doing it so they get to drop the H bomb and feel great about it, but when i 've done it it 's because I hate that reaction that people have where they suddenly assume a lot of things about you. They assume that you grew up wealthy, you know, they assume that you operate in a certain way. And it wasn't true of me. And it wasn't true of the people I was friends with. But it's really, it's the cultural baggage that that Harvard can carry with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we both just told stories that will fundamentally shift how people see us, right? I mean, that's the point of, of that moment. Let's talk a little bit about change. Um, You know, I think the entire world is going through change at the moment, Uh, you know, from throughout India, throughout, you know, East Asia, through Latin America, certainly South African America. Everyone is grappling with change. Let's talk a little bit about designing for change.
0: Yeah, so early in the book, I actually talk about three basic principles of designing for behavior change, and it's people are different, um, context matters, and things change. So when we design, we need to understand that whether or not we're doing our jobs right, but especially if we're doing our jobs right, people are going to need different things over time because they will gain new skills. They will be exposed to new information. The people and context around them will change, and that will affect the way that support needs to show up for them, the types of tools that they need in order to do something. So a really important kind of principle in the way that I approach my work, I guess it's a mindset mindset is that there's nothing I'm going to design for somebody that's going to work for them forever. I really think very much about getting them to a specific goal. And then once they've reached that goal, I think I use the term in the book too, they get to graduate from whatever it is I've designed and move on to the next thing. And I've worked with people before who don't like that mindset because they hear, I'm going to make my own product obsolete. But what I see it as is, you know, there's no shortage of products out there. There's a whole universe of stuff. And I I really think that part of our job is curating the right toolkit for an individual so that as they graduate from one experience or they finish using one intervention, the next one is there for them. And that could come from the same group, the same company, or it could be, you know, someone different. And we also know that as things change, sometimes they don't change in a positive direction. So people might relapse if they're going through a behavior change process. They might, you know, slide back to an earlier phase. And if that's the case and they need your product or they need your service again, if we've made it easy for them to graduate the first time, you know, if we've given them that happy goodbye and sent them on their way, we're leaving them with a good feeling where they'll be willing to come back and try again, as opposed to a lot of products make it so difficult to quit. Even things like, um, it's really common where you pay a subscription and you can very easily sign up online and give your credit card information. But when it's time to cancel, they make you pick up the phone and call. So that's, that's a dark design pattern that's specifically intended to keep more people paying that subscription because the effort of canceling is too much. Well, that sort of thing, if someone does cancel and then six months later or six years later, they're interested in a product like that again, they're probably going to choose a competitor because they're going to remember that difficult experience of having to get on the phone and wait on hold and have somebody try to upsell them and keep them as a customer. So I think it's really important to understand that change is going to happen and build it right into the foundation of the way that we approach design.
1: Is there an area in your life that you have applied this to?
0: I mean, I think for me, exercise has been the area where I've applied more, most of this stuff, most explicitly, I did not grow up. um, I was, I was like a chubby nerd. so (laughs) I didn't grow up being physically active at all. It's something that I started doing as an adult. And that means it was really kind of effortful for me. It was, it was mostly when I was in graduate school, actually, that I started becoming active, because I realized that I was just so exhausted. And I wasn't, you know, wasn't feeling great. And I was struggling with my weight in my 20s. And I didn't want that to be the case. And so I've really been thoughtful, even to this day about applying behavior change principles to physical activity. And some of it, like I said, you know, things things like the the Peloton, I feel totally goofy saying I have one because it's such a a luxury (laughs) item, but it builds in a lot of these behavior change things. And I know that I'll use it. So, you know, that that to me, I think is my my one place where I've really applied the change principles.
1: All right. We're at number five now. And I think it was Plato who argued that we all have this ideal version of ourself in our unconscious mind. And I think all of our future selves have become an important, you know, ideal, but you argue that it's important to set the right goals. If you're going to get there, tell us a little bit about this.
0: Yeah. So I, I've fallen prey to this too, but I think we all have a tendency to think of our future self as this much better version of who we are today. Um, it, again, to hit the exercise thing, it's like when when I register for a race that is three months away, I think, yeah, sure. I'll be in shape for that. No problem. And then as I actually have to <laughs> sit down and write the training plan and go out and do all the, the training runs, I'm like, who, what was I thinking? Why did I think that this would be easy for me. <laughs> so some of it is, is really just having empathy for that future self, recognizing that the future self is a version of who you are today, probably not all that different of a version. Um, and, and, you know, being realistic in the goals that you set. Of course, aspiration is great, but, you know, not overwhelming your future self with the goals that you set, making sure that you leave enough time for them to be achieved trying to create some structure early in the process for them to be sure. achieved so similar to the race like don't sign up for a marathon two months before the the race date because that yeah it's not going to leave you the time you need and then um one thing that i've really been thinking a lot about the whole idea of motivation is that we want to connect to something that's internally personal to us you have something that is personally meaningful and hopefully that is consistent over the course of time. And so, with the pandemic that's been happening since you know this year in 2020, um, one of the things I've really been thinking about a lot for myself as my world changes. Is how do I hone in on who I am and what I value? And this tool has existed for a while. I actually um, was mentored by one of the creators of it when I was at University of Michigan. But the Values in Action Survey is an online okay. tool. It, it comes out of the University of Pennsylvania Center for Positive Psychology. So Martin Seligman is the, the lead researcher. And then Christopher Peterson was one of his collaborators who was my mentor um, and unfortunately passed away several years ago. But it's a survey that's built on an enormous data set. You take the questions and it tells you what are the top five or six character strengths that you have. And what I find so useful about it is that it gives me something I can use to frame a particular challenge ahead of me because I know that the things that I am good at today, the things that are my values and my character strengths, those are going to be true for my future self too. So oh, wow. it, gives me, it gives me some confidence that I can make some choices today that will serve that future version of me.
1: And how do we find that particular site?
0: So it's the Values in Action Survey, VIA. Um, I don't have the URL offhand, okay. if, if you, and it's you at the University it. of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay, so actually the, the app Happify is built on the values in action survey. But if you use oh, Happify, wow. you have to upgrade to a subscription to see all of your results. And oh, of course they, they build other programming around it. It's not just the survey, but if you just want to see your survey results and you want to see the full results, the University of Pennsylvania site is a good one.
1: Thank you so much, Amy. These are really, really helpful. Is there any final insight in particular that from your work, from your book that you would like to share?
0: Um, I mean, I think a really important thing that I continually learn in my career and that I would encourage others to think of, too, is that there's never a time to stop doing your research. So talking to people, being connected to the people that you design for, um, there's always value in that, no matter where you are in your design process. So even if you have a product that's finished and on the market, it's worth talking to people about their experiences with it and their experiences with that domain more generally, because there's always something to learn because things change
1: well i'd like to recommend that at some stage you look up the two oceans marathon Mm -hmm. in cape town it's one of the most beautiful marathons in the world Uh, the route is just mind-blowing and it's a time of the year where the weather is just incredible so perhaps you and a loved one could look that up and you never know um maybe we could meet somewhere in uh my partner and I we could meet somewhere in Cape Town.
0: That sounds nice, especially if they have a half marathon option.
1: <laughs> yeah, they do. That's they have. All right. The half marathon is probably more popular actually.
0: Yeah, I think I'm retired from the full marathon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and your book is engaged. And uh, finally, where can people follow you?
0: So, I'm on Twitter at amybphd. I have a website, which is PhD.com. I had to add the PhD because there's a photographer with the same name who has the okay. URL without it. And then okay. I, I work for MadPow. So madpow.com, we are a strategic design consultancy in the US and we are primarily focused on health and financial services with uh, that motivational lens on helping people to achieve goals.
1: A huge thanks to Dr. Buker. Make sure you get her book, and share this episode with someone who is serious about change. Email me, podcast at com or tmw at com. And please rate the show or comment. Until next time.